Genesis 38. Hear the word of our God. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adomite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and, he, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house uh, till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. Then Judah was comforted. He went up to Timnah, to, the sheep, uh, to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira, the Adamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Neam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, his thoughts, uh, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, come let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you will give me a pledge until you send it, he said, a pledge shall, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adelmite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And when he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at NEM at the roadside? They said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the land said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own. Or shall we be laughed at? Or sorry, we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. 
And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, she put out, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zira. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will so that we might have spiritual wisdom and understanding. We ask this so that we might live a life worthy of you, pleasing you in every way, that we may bear fruit in every good work, that we might grow in our knowledge of you, that we might be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, that we may have great patience and endurance, joyfully giving thanks to you. Thank you for qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints and the kingdom of light. Thank you for rescuing us from the dominion of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of your Son, because you love him. Thank you for the redemption or forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. I have a confession to make. It's an unusual confession, I'm sure. I used to watch a soap opera. Yes. When I was in high school, I would come home from from school... And my mom would be downstairs watching As the World Turns. And I would sit there and I would start to watch As the World Turns. And when you hear why I watched As the World Turns, you might be encouraged by this. And that was because a very young Meg Ryan was on As the World Turns. So it was all about Meg Ryan, really. It wasn't about the soap opera. Uh, it was about Meg Ryan. Um, but soap operas, you know, it's kind of a interesting concept when you think about it, isn't it? That people would watch these lives that are so marked by sin and immorality and find it entertaining. That these shows would go on for decades. Uh, it's actually interesting that uh, some of them have finally, they started to tune them down, close them out because they're no longer getting the, uh, the ratings because they can't compete with Jerry Springer, probably. I don't know. But some people's lives are like a soap opera. They are marked and marred by sin. And I couldn't help but read Genesis 28, uh, sorry, 38 and think of soap operas, of how messed up Judah's family was. It's like the cameras are there in some weird reality show filming all of this. It's sad in many ways. And the big idea that I kind of culled from this as I thought about this text and what to present about it was that God's sinful people need a sinless redeemer. And we're going to see how that develops in the midst of all of this mess of their lives. It. It starts sort of with this notion that uh, we are to seek saints in a sinful society. Remember uh, that Judah and his brothers are still, I mean, they're, they're living in Canaan. They are the minority in Canaan. 
This takes place right after the events with the selling of Joseph into slavery. And what Judah does is he essentially leaves the family. Moses doesn't tell us why. It could have to do with the guilt of not wanting to, you know, look his father in the face day in and day out and admit the fact that he had sold his own brother into slavery and deceived his father. He probably couldn't live or stay true to the lie as we talked about last week. And so what he does is he goes down, it says. Kind of interesting. I mean, literally he went down from the highlands down into the foothills, but is also a, a picture of his spiritual state. He's, he's declining in his spiritual state as he goes to live among the Canaanites. We see his best friend who was with him for years. Not quite probably the best guy that you would want to be a part of your life. But Judah, in this, assimilates himself to the Canaanite culture instead of maintaining a distinctive lifestyle that is shaped by his faith in God. And so we see that his faith, at this point in his life anyway, things are going to change for Judah. We're going to see that. But at this point, things take a downward turn for Judah. It's almost summed up in this one phrase, Judah saw and he took her. Speaking about the unnamed Canaanite woman. We know her father's name, but we don't know her name. The brevity of this uh, has led many to, to imply or say that he implies uh, that Judah is acting on the basis of lust and only lust. He sees her. He must have her. And so he takes her. This is not a relationship. This is not a, you know, like a courtship that takes place over time, building the bonds of love. But Judah acts more like Esau in all of this. What we know about her is that she lived, what her father's name was, that she bore three sons to Judah and she died. That's the sum total of her life, according to Moses. We know almost nothing about this woman. But then Moses makes a characterization of two of the three sons of Judah that she bore him. They were wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so not only has Judah gone and left the family, not only has Judah taken to himself a Canaanite woman, okay? Again, we'll, re- we'll remember, this is not about race. This is not about she's from the wrong tribe. It's she's wor- she worships the wrong gods, And leads to his moral compromise. And now we see how this is reflected, both his sin and her sin as well, reflected in what happens to the two oldest sons. I'm reminded, uh, of course, right now I'm reading 1 Samuel, but I'm reminded of the two sons of Eli, the priest. They were wicked, and God judged them, killed them on the same day. And yet Samuel, who grew up in Eli's household, didn't learn from this because his own two sons ended up being wicked and taking advantage of the people. And so we see something similar here with Judah's children, wickedness. As a minority culture within Canaan, Israel was unfortunately beginning to be conformed to the Canaanite culture. And so part of why this is found here. There's a couple of different reasons, but one reason why is this is probably a justification for their, the fact that they go into Egypt. 
that one of the reasons God brings them into Egypt is for their own good because so they do not become conformed to the Canaanite culture and lose their faith. Instead, he brings them into Egypt, which is a, a much more um, segregated community, shall we say. In this sense, it was in a good way. Israel was kind of shipped off to Goshen to be all by themselves where they could maintain their distinctiveness, they could maintain their heritage in the face of a culture around them that was very sinful. And so they're not ready to go into Canaan, and so God puts them essentially in a greenhouse so that they might grow and grow and become strong. But we see from Second Samuel, First uh, Samuel eight, that they didn't really learn the lesson that they should have learned from Judah's life. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Their pattern hadn't changed. We see that what what took place in the life of this person, Judah, was replicated in the life of Israel while it was in the promised land. And there's always that danger that it also takes place in the church in whatever culture it finds itself. There is a danger that is present that we become not just in the world, but of the world. Not just in Tucson, but of Tucson, that we begin to share in the sins of Tucson or whatever particular culture we happen to find ourselves in at a particular point in time. This is why Peter, in in the second chapter of his first letter, urges them, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And one of the things that tempts us and draws out those sinful desires that wage war against our soul is the participation of the people around us, encouraging us to give way to these things. And so the the life of Judah stands as a stark warning to us that we're not to give free reign to our sinful desires, but we're actually to put them to death. We are to abstain. We are to say no to these things because we belong to Jesus Christ. And so in order to live godly lives in a messed up world, a soap opera kind of world, we need the fellowship of saints. And the most important saint that we need fellowship with is Jesus himself. And we need this more than Sunday. It's greater than just, hey, we see each other for an hour and a half, or if you come to Sunday school, for two and a half, three hours. We need more than that. Because the pressures we face outside of this place and these people are great, and our hearts conspire with them. Let's get back to the text. We don't know what the great wickedness Ur did was. But we do know that Moses did not hide Onan's sin from us. Now, what's strange to me is how many people have ignored what Moses says the sin is and have said that other things are sin because of this text. Okay. The Church of Rome, for instance, uses this text against um, contraception. Um, This text has really nothing to do with contraception. 
anything in there is incidental to that particular point. What is the sin of Onan? The sin of Onan is that he would not give offspring to his brother. That he hated his brother. But keep this in mind. He uses Tamar in the process. And so it wasn't as though he, he, he completely avoided the marriage bed, but what he did is he made sure that he did not conceive Again, because he hated his brother. That is the great evil uh, that which he commits at this point in time. Even as he continues to satisfy his lust with Tamar. See, it's just like a soap opera. Getting your lust out. It's all those soap operas are about. There's no godliness. There's no restraint. You know, there's no boundaries that cannot be broken. And so here we have boundaries broken. And the Lord does the same thing to both brothers. And this is the first time we see this. And it, and it is shocking and it should shock us because it says the Lord put him to death about each of them. That's a warning to the people of Israel. They can only get so far with their sin. There, there's going to come a point in time when God will say enough is enough. And we saw that that the exile came. And we have to know, too, that grace is not a license to sin. It's not like a, you know, sin-freely card. We have to be aware of the fact that God will not persevere with our sin forever. We must be wise and seek to put our sin to death. And so we must put the temptation to assimilate to sinful society to death, lest it kill us. Second part, as I look at this text, is that God uses flawed customs for holy purposes. The Hittites and other communities around Israel, as well as the Assyrians farther away, they all practiced what is called, um, and I always mispronounce it, Leverite marriage. L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E for those of you who want to know how to spell that. And so what happens is in this practice, which, again, we saw it in Deuteronomy 25, but it is not particular to Israel. It was something that they kept from the surrounding cultures, although they, they changed a little bit of how they, they practiced it, which we'll get to later. And it was, it was happened would be this. If there is a man who is married and who does not have an heir and he dies... If he has an unmarried relative, that unmarried relative is to take her as his own wife and to produce the first son would become the heir of this man, the other man, the dead one. So that, as, as it says in Deuteronomy, that his name would not be blotted out from Israel. God cared about his people and did not want lineages, lines of people to, to be eliminated from Israel. Not only that, but this is also, in a sense, merciful. I know this might sound strange to us in our culture, okay? But think about it in a different different way. For the for the widow, 
instead of being tossed out into the world, she, she remains within that family culture, that particular clan out of the tribe, that family, okay, and they continue to protect her and provide for her, and that one day that heir will provide for her as well. And so this is also for the, the maintenance of the widow, so that she is not cast out and left to her own devices in a culture in which women essentially could not exist apart from a family. Okay, so it maintains her bond with that particular family that she married into. And that's part of the weird part of this text is that Judah sends her to her her father's house. She was supposed to remain in Judah's house. Anyway, that's the practice that, that takes place. And it's very strange for us to hear, I'm sure. And I'm sure that most of you are glad it's not practiced here. Right? <laughs> um, but it's still practiced in parts of the world. Okay? This, this goes on. So the family was, was the, was the prime, had primary responsibility for widows. Then, and if we're serious about Scripture, the other passages that we read this morning we still should be recognizing the responsibility of family for widows. Now, we heard how the church had widow roles, and the widow role was for the elderly widow who had no family, who had exhibited a godly lifestyle, and so the church would come and they would take care of her. They would act as if they were her family because she didn't have one. But the primary responsibility for the elderly was their own family. And that is one of the flaws of our culture is that we have moved beyond that. And we don't take care of our elderly, our parents. We don't, in a sense, repay all that they invested in us when we were children and had no one to take care of them. And so when we, when we want to think biblically about what to do with widows, we think family, church. First the family, then the church. We have someone like Jeanette, whose family is here. They're taking care of her. She lives with them. Okay, That's a beautiful and good thing. Not always easy, but beautiful and good. Okay, you know We have Enid, who doesn't have any children of her own, and yet I'm grateful that you know, her stepson takes care of her, looks out for her, and yet he's, he's all the way in Europe, and so we are to draw next to her. We are to encourage. Notice what it says in there. The women taking care of the widows. Let's keep that in mind. Okay? So we, we see, we don't practice what they did in the Old Testament, but, but we still have a way to take care of the widows in our midst. Onan, Onan was supposed to provide an heir for Ur by marrying Tamar. And when he failed, God killed him. Not failed inadvertently, but failed purposefully. Okay? And so what happens is that the third son is promised to her. And so essentially they're betrothed. But Judah's intention is to not go through with this because instead of laying the blame upon his sons for their own deaths, as Moses does, he kind of blames Tamar. He's afraid that his third son will also die as if, as if sort of Tamar is this black widow. 
you know, that, that somehow she is the reason why these men are dying when really she just has the unfortunate reality of marrying into the wrong family, a messed up family with messed up men. Okay? So she has to wait until Shayla is about 13. Boys could get married at 13 in that time. Isn't that exciting, ladies? You can marry a 12, ladies. But, I mean, you know, think of how immature a 13-year-old is. I don't think, even, even though they were more mature then, probably, because they faced more things, I'm thinking they're not incredibly mature either. And yet, so she has to wait until Shayla is 13 years old for her to be married to him. Okay? Let's step back from the text for a moment. Because, you know, as I'm... Looking at this text, I'm like, well, what? what's really going on here? Why is this so important? And it goes back to the idea of the seed. It starts in Genesis 3. That there will be a seed of a woman who will come and will crush the head of the serpent. God then clarifies this promise a little bit more in Genesis 12 when he promises to Abraham that his seed, through him he will bless the world. And so there's this one seed, and we, we know, you know, as it kind of goes on, it's not Ishmael, it's going to be Isaac, the son of promise. Okay, And then Isaac passes on that, that promise to his son Jacob. All right? And we're seeing this development of this, this line. There's this holy line that's going on. And what we don't know yet, but we'll get to when we get to chapter 49, is that it is Judah through whom the king will come. It is Judah through whom the Redeemer is going to come. And so that is why we find the name Tamar in Jesus' genealogy. But the proper son of inheritance for for Judah was so wicked that God had him killed. And so what God is doing through this very flawed human custom is he is going to provide a holy seed, Perez, the twin that is born there. He is going to be the one through whom the line will be counted because he stands in the place of his father, Ur. So this brings us from Genesis 49 through Ruth, where this again happens, we see in the, for the line of David is, is established, the promise that is given in 2 Samuel 7 that, uh, you know, to David that his, someone from his throne will sit upon the throne, from his line will sit upon the throne forever. And we see this in Matthew 1, where, G, where Matthew was saying, all of this is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the Holy Seed, who has come. For unholy people. So God's judgment was on the children of Judah's Canaanite wife. God wants godly seed. God provides godly seed through all of this. Even though Tamar is a Canaanite, she seems to actually have some character. And so the promise comes through her children. But what happens next is that she takes advantage of Judah's weakness. I don't know if that's only in a bad way, but 
She sees what's going on. She sees that his, that his wife has died, so there's no more children. She sees that Shayla has grown up. He's past the age of marriage, and she is still waiting. And so she essentially takes matters into her own hands. She hears that he is going up to shear the sheep, and this is an occasion, uh, I mean, we probably can't grasp this. This was a, an occasion of great festivity and joy. There would be a little bit of excess. There'd probably be a little bit of too much drinking. There'd be some frolicking, and things would get a little bit out of control, okay? And so she decides to take advantage of this moment that she might have a, a child that she might be cared for because she has been unjustly um, prohibited from having a child. First by Onan and then by Judah himself. And so she removes her, her widow clothes. She puts on the dressing of a harlot and she puts on a veil, which now that's significant. If we think about things in terms of, uh, well, I don't think about things. Maybe I do think about things. I don't know. The streetwalker versus the call girl. One is sort of lowly and the other one costs a whole lot of money. There's a, there's a status thingy right there, you know? It's similar here. The, the, the common harlot was looked down upon. She would not wear a veil. She was brazen. She was looked down upon by the people. But in Canaanite culture, the cult prostitute, whether male or female, had a status, a high status. They performed an important function in their society. We don't understand that, do we? But Canaan, that was part of the problem with Canaanite worship. Was it was marked by immorality. Okay? You know, I, I once made the joke about a, a church sign I saw that said, you know, Hot coffee, jam and band. Well, in Canaanite culture, it would be, you know, hot guys and girls. You know, the best churches have the most beautiful people. It's sick. It's crazed. So she knows that he's going to be up there. She knows that he will probably want to partake in some of this. And so she poses herself off as a prostitute. Now, in Canaanite culture... When it came to this type of marriage, the father-in-law was legitimate. Now, that's the difference with Israelite practice of this. The father-in-law was prohibited. It had to be a brother or a cousin. And so, in her mind, she's doing an okay thing. Of course, Leviticus and Deuteronomy had not been written yet, so she does not know that this is as immoral as it really is. Okay? So she pulls off this great deception... I don't know how. It's kind of like Batman, you know? It's like, how does everyone not know Batman's Batman? I mean, Bruce Wayne? Or, or, or Spider-Man. How does everyone not figure out that it's Peter Parker? You know, no one's done a voice analysis. Hello? <laughs> you know, somehow she's able to disguise her voice enough so that Judah does not re- recognize that this is actually Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Okay? But we see here again that sinful families need this sinful, this sinless rather, redeemer. And we see that God is going to provide Jesus through this sinful family. Okay, in a sense, he is going to use their sin, but sinlessly. So we see that God is not bound by holy means to accomplish his purposes, but he uses sin, as I said, 
sinlessly to do his good work. Last part of this. Repent. Confession is the catalyst for change. Here we have again the irony of it all. Judah, who who just previously had deceived his father, is now deceived. What was used in the deception of his father? Clothing and goats. What do we see used in his deception? Clothing and goats. Just as was used in the deception of Isaac by Jacob, clothing and goats. We have this whole theme. And the other deception that we know about, the deception of Leah when she deceived uh, Jacob, had clothing, no goats. Well, maybe the goats of the wedding festival, but uh, nonetheless. But clothing is, is a central theme that runs through all of these deceptions as this family continues to reap what it has sown. They have sown deception, they reap deception. The one who deceived becomes the one who is deceived. And it continues with Judah. The sinfulness of God's people of that generation becomes quite clear to us. Judah, who thinks he's committing fornication, actually commits adultery but he's angry that the betrothed Tamar has committed adultery. Did you catch that? He's angry with her for committing the same thing he had committed. He has a double standard. He's outraged. He he, he wants her brought to justice, and at that point in time, it was burning. He wanted her burned, alive. And so he's getting her, you know, dragged out of her father's home, where she's not supposed to be in the first place, supposed to be his home, okay? And she says, let him know that the, the person responsible for this, for this owns these things. He did not seek out any explanation. He was rash. He didn't hear her case, and he's about to get caught up in a bigger problem. But self-righteousness, which Judah exhibits here, is one of the sins that really stagnates our growth and maturity in Christ. If you don't think you're growing very much in Jesus Christ, that might be the reason. If all you ever see is other people's sin and not your own, you're struggling with self-righteousness. If you're very quick to point the finger at other people and not look at yourself, you're struggling with self-righteousness, and that is going to stagnate your relationship with Christ. Uh, I I think a couple years ago, I had a filter that we pulled out of the AC unit, and it was all clogged with all the lint and dust and junk. And You know what happens when an AC filter gets all clogged like that? The AC doesn't work. When your heart is clogged with self-righteousness, grace doesn't get through. Okay? You're not going to grow. You're not going to mature. Okay? 
And so what happens here is that since Judah is not repenting of his sin, Tamar exposes him for his, his hypocrisy at the city gate. And what should have been a private sort of thing, Judah makes a public sort of thing to his own embarrassment. But sometimes it has to come to the light of day. Meaning, if you don't deal with your sin, God will deal with your sin. If you're not confessing your sin to Him, He will bring it out so that you have to deal with it. But what we see here is that God in His severe mercy is actually redeeming Judah. This is going to be the the, the thing that changes the the, the direction of Judah's life so that he actually becomes the, the leader of his family. When the next time we see him, he's going to be with his family, the rest of his brothers and with his father, and he is going to be the one who shows integrity in what happens. And so this is the turning point of Judah's life. This is an incredibly important moment. This is, uh, you know, I, I thought of Jerry Springer when things come to light, but in those instances it's always like, oh, look how bad we are. Isn't this fun? But here it's very different. Judah, Judah feels the sting of guilt. She is more righteous than I. He's recognizing that she has a legitimate claim and that he is guilty of of a social injustice that must be rectified, a social injustice that was far greater than the sexual sin that took place. Sometimes we kind of make sexual sin the biggest thing in the universe, and it's bad. But there are other sins that are at least as bad, if not worse. And the implication of this text is that social injustice is one of those sins. Because she is more righteous relatively than Judah. We probably have a hard time with that now, right now, don't we? It's not easy for us to think about. We may be more righteous than someone else, just like she was more righteous than him, but that does not avoid the fact that we all need the righteous one, Christ. Whatever our sin is, it's not so small that we do not need the righteous one. But confessing his sins is the beginning of Judah's transformation and ours. It's the whole idea of the catalyst. A catalyst for chemistry is a substance that causes a chemical reaction without itself being changed. Sometimes you have two chemicals that can be close to each other, you know, in, in contact with one another, and not change anything, but then you add the catalyst. And the catalyst doesn't change, but those two chemicals do their magic thing. They react. They do something else, depending on what you stick together. Okay? A catalyst outside of the, the chemistry aspect can be a person or thing that precipitates a change. And so confession is the catalyst 
the thing that precipitates change in a human being, what I mean is, is that there is, there is no change in the Christian life without confession. Without confession, you stay as you are. You, do, you are not sanctified progressively. You are stuck. Go to Psalm 32 and Psalm 53, and you'll see stuckness. It's not a pleasant thing. Judah was stuck. And so are we when we refuse to confess our sin. In a sense, confess your mess. And that begins the process of being less of a mess. Wednesday, probably not go down as one of my best days. Didn't sleep well. Had a migraine. You know, I'm in the office. And my keyboard was giving me fits, and I finally fixed the keyboard, and now my mouse is going crazy. And Cinda wasn't here. And I couldn't take it anymore. Okay, it's not that um, the situation produced the sin. It just allowed the opportunity for that which is in my heart to go, Woohoo, here I am. Okay, I let a few choice words fly out about my mouse, man. (laughs) I wanted to do bad things to that mouse. Okay? And like seconds later, it's like, Father, forgive me. A mess. But... Becoming less of a mess as we confess our sin and lay hold of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Okay? You're all a mess. But are you going to look to Christ to fix the mess? Are you going to admit that the, the messiness in your life? Or are you going to stay stuck in the mess? That's it. So, living in a sinful society is very complicated. There are numerous temptations to compromise God's holiness, uh, His character, in order to fit in. And very soon, if we're not careful, our life can start to look like a soap opera or a Jerry Springer show. But God provided a Redeemer, despite all of their sin. Isn't that amazing? That Christ would come from such a messed up family? Through Christ, they find pardoning grace. In Christ, they find empowering grace to leave those sinful desires behind. And because of Christ, they can be in the society, but not of the society. So, brothers and sisters, what does he still need to change in you? Confess to let the transformation begin. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for us to look at Judah and his sons and, and rightfully say, boy, they're messed up. But, but to not look at ourselves and go, boy, how I need to change too. That if I were in a situation like that, there's some of those things I might do. That there's still indwelling sin and there's still patterns of sin that need to be dealt with by Jesus. So, Father, I ask that your Spirit would be at work in these people this morning uh, as they think about this, that you would, in fact, make them think about this. That you would shine the, the spotlight upon their own hearts so that they would see that which you want to change in them 
in the next stretch of their life. Show them what they need to confess, what they need to deal with, because you have said, now is the time I want to deal with this. And may they confess precisely because they see Christ, the crucified one, and know that there is forgiveness for those who freely come to you through him. That Jesus has indeed borne all of the penalty due our sin. That Jesus has indeed obeyed all of the law for our righteousness. That we, we need not have fear. But create that freedom in our hearts to, to admit our failings to you. And ask for your help in ending them. So that, that you might receive much glory for your grace to us, your sanctifying grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.